I have a picture in my study that my wife cross-stitched for me many, many years ago now, when I first began preaching regularly. I have kept it as a good reminder all these years. The picture shows a little sandy-haired boy standing on a stool behind a makeshift wooden pulpit. His pants have a big patch on them, and his shirt is untucked. On the pulpit is a large open Bible, and the little boy is leaning over the pulpit to look at his congregation. The lone member of the congregation is a tiny gray mouse looking up at the preacher. The caption reads, Preach the truth no matter what. Preach the truth no matter what. I like that little picture. It reminds me that it is far more important to speak God's truth than it is to receive man's applause. We must communicate that truth in a loving manner, but real love is not afraid to speak the truth. Many people today have this sicky-sweet concept of sentimental love as if love never hurts, love is never painful. Love to many means that we are always to support someone, no matter what they do or what they believe. But real, biblical love is not afraid to help someone face the truth, even if the truth hurts. Tough love happens in healthy churches. Yes, it might hurt, but it is honest. The truth hurts sometimes. Paul in Galatians 4 teaches us that true love requires speaking the truth. Unfortunately, we often speak the truth selectively, and therein lies the problem. We know better than to lie, but rather than face something unpleasant, we will avoid the truth. We bring up the truth only on certain occasions, and usually when it is important to us, not the other person. We also tend to speak the truth in an unloving manner that expresses more about us than it does about the truth. When someone says, I'm going to tell you the truth, we wonder what that person has been telling us all along. My friends, Love never shies away from the truth. Christians often say, Oh, I couldn't tell him that because it would hurt him. The result is, the churches fall into tolerating sin. Marriages fall apart because one partner cannot be honest with the other one. No relationship can remain healthy on the basis of selective truth. True love requires speaking the truth. Notice what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 12 to 14. He has been making some very strong statements, and now he wants to share his love for them. He is wearing his heart on his sleeve in these verses. True love speaks the truth about personal affection, in verses 12 to 14. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. 
you have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. The opening expression that Paul uses here is somewhat puzzling. Literally, Paul writes, Because as I, for I as you. Because as I, for I as you. That makes little sense grammatically. So translators have to supply other words to make sense of the expression. There are those who suggest that Paul is saying that they should become free in their Christian faith like he is free, because he became like them in order to preach the gospel to them. Well, however true that thought is, I think Paul is saying something quite different than that in the light of the next few verses. The next few verses focus on his personal affection for them and how they express their affection for him. That is why I like the way the New English Bible translated this phrase. Put yourselves in my place, my brothers. I beg you, for I have put myself in yours. One commentator paraphrases it this way. Be as frank and loving with me as I have been with you. Paul is talking about their personal affection for him and his personal affection for them in these verses. He goes on to say that they didn't do him any wrong. In fact, he's grateful for all their support and encouragement in the past. He is appealing to the same affection they had for him when he first preached the gospel to them. Apparently, when Paul first came to the Galatians, he was a very sick man. The Greek expression used in verse 13 does not indicate that the bodily illness was the means of his preaching to them. It indicates that because of bodily illness, he ended up preaching the gospel to them. And many have tied this passage together with Paul's discussion of his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, and it's entirely possible that they are one and the same. We simply do not know what that thorn in the flesh was. Some have argued that it was a severe bout with malaria, which Paul contracted in the marshy regions along the coast, and that's why he ended up in the hill country of Galatia preaching the gospel while he recuperated from malaria. Others have suggested that it was epilepsy because the word translated loath or reject in verse 14 literally means to spit at. It was a word which was used to despise people they thought were demon-possessed. Epilepsy in the ancient world was one of those diseases they would spit at and hurry away. But the most popular idea is that Paul had some form of eye disease which was repulsive because his eyes would ooze with pus. This view is based on the expression in verse 15 that the Galatians would have plucked out their eyes and given them to Paul if they could. I think it is probable that Paul had an eye condition, although I realize the expression could also be taken figuratively rather than literally. We often say things like, 
he would have given his right arm to help me if he could. And Paul might be saying something similar about the Galatians with respect to his eyes. We simply don't know what the illness was. But whatever it was, the Galatians welcomed him with open arms and cared for him and supported him during this illness. They welcomed him as they would an angel or Christ Jesus himself. Paul is so thankful for that support and affection and tells the truth about their mutual affection in the church. And this is what, all, what the church is all about. A local church gathers for the, for the mutual support of its members. We love each other and we care for each other. We have so professionalized worship services today that music becomes all about the quality of the performance that will attract people to church. Well, church is not about our performance before others. Church is about our heart for God and other believers. Church is about loving one another because we love God. We gather to support one another in love as we worship God together. Robert Neff tells a story about visiting a church service one Sunday morning when the tenor who sang did not get out of bed on the right note. His voice was faltering and off-key. So the congregation began to sing along with the soloist, joining him in worship and getting him back on key. By the third verse, the tenor was finding his notes, and by the fourth verse, the congregation was silent, and the tenor sang the most beautiful solo of his life. That, my friends, is love in gathered worship. That is the church sustaining one another. They could have told the tenor that he was off-key, and that would have been the truth. But how much better to help him find the truth through loving encouragement. We need churches that care more about each other than they do about the performance. True worship is heart worship. I think back over my life to all those times when someone lovingly encouraged me with the truth. I well remember when I sang my first duet as a teenager at an Easter sunrise service. It was awful. I couldn't find my notes, and I finished in shame. One older man came up to me to speak to me afterwards. He didn't lie about my performance, but he told me how much he appreciated my song because it was sung to the Lord, and that was what worship was all about. I suppose I can thank God for people with tin ears. Or there was the time when I preached my first sermon in that same church as a young Bible college student. My dad was pastoring that church. And he asked me to preach. It was awful. I had 20 pages of notes that I had no idea what I was saying after the first minute or so. I simply lost my way. Yet the church saw in me the desire to honor the Lord 
and encouraged me to continue to learn and grow. Where would I be today without the loving encouragement of those faithful Christians as I wrestled with trying to serve the Lord before them? My friends, let's start by being truthful about the affections which bind us together in the church. Love is more important than performance. When the tough times come in our relationships with one another, let's remind ourselves of where we've been together and how we love one another. When we start from love, we can move to criticism that is loving. True love speaks the truth about personal affections that bind us together. And secondly, true love speaks the truth about personal enmity. True love speaks the truth about personal enmity. Love doesn't gloss over the facts. Love does not pretend to ignore the elephant in the room because we think we can't correct someone who is doing some, something wrong. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 4, verses 15 and 16. Where, then, is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? The word translated blessing, or blessedness, or joy, depending upon your translation, was a word which meant a pronounced blessing. It meant to congratulate someone. It meant to be happy. The Galatians had congratulated themselves on being so fortunate as to listen to Paul's preaching during those early days. They had considered themselves so blessed by his preaching ministry that they would have given whatever he needed because of their joy in Christ. And Paul says, What has happened to that sense of blessedness? Did I suddenly become your enemy when I confronted you with the truth? Is our relationship so fragile that you would turn against me because I tell you the truth that you do not want to hear? Truth is not always popular. We don't like the bathroom scales that tell us we are overweight. We don't like the photograph that hasn't been touched up to make us look better. We don't like it when someone points out our flaws or our mistakes. As someone has said, know the truth and the truth will set you free, but speak the truth and you may get a punch in the nose. That's particularly true in the political world today. We can quickly become the enemy when we point out wrong thinking on a political topic. Well, this is one of the great struggles of any preacher. He knows that if he preaches the Bible, that he will step on people's toes. Everything is fine as long as the preacher is stepping on the toes of other people we think need the truth. But sooner or later, the preacher will step on our toes. And then how will we react? Over time, the preacher steps on the toes of enough people, and he gets pushed out of the pastorate. Perhaps that's one reason why the average pastorate today is only a few years compared to early American history when the average pastor stayed in one church for 30, 40 years. 
It's also the reason that pastors can become people pleasers, intent on keeping everyone happy rather than preaching an unpopular truth. Paul asks the Galatians, Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? True love speaks the truth even if it is unpopular. True love speaks the truth even if it produces enmity among those who once loved you. People may turn against you. They may leave the church. But we must preach the truth with love no matter what. True love speaks the truth about personal affections. And secondly, true love speaks the truth about personal enmity. Thirdly, true love speaks the truth about personal zeal. True love speaks the truth about personal zeal in verses 17 through 20. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you, I am confused about you. The King James Version translates verse 17, They zealously seek you, but not for good talking about the legalizers. Then Paul says in verse 18, it is good to be zealously sought in a good thing. You see, zeal can be either good or bad. The verb can have either positive or negative meanings. It can mean jealousy or envy with a negative sense, or it can mean enthusiasm and passion in a positive way. In either sense, the word has reference to seeking or pursuing someone or something with emotional passion. Our motives and our actions determine whether the pursuit is positive or negative. We can be zealous for the wrong things, and we can be zealous for the right things in the wrong way. On the other hand, we can be rightly zealous for the right things in the right way. And Paul uses this same word over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, where he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. It's in the realm of marital relationships where we can best see this issue of zeal illustrated. The man who pursues another man's wife is exhibiting an ungodly zeal or passion, while the husband who is jealous for his wife's affections is exhibiting a godly zeal or jealousy. It is that sort of thought that Paul has in mind in these verses. Notice that in verse 17, zeal must not be founded upon selfish motives. It must not be founded on selfish motives. The legalizers were like a man who pursues another man's wife. The word for zeal could refer to wooing or courting someone. And there the legalizers were courting the Galatian believers in an improper way. 
they wanted to leave their they wanted the Galatian believers to leave their allegiance to Paul and have the Galatian believers listen to them, the legalizers. They wanted the exclusive love of the Galatians. So they were selfish and were essentially seducing the Christians away from the Lord and away from Paul's teaching. These legalizers were the ultimate sheep stealers. They were like pastor to pastors today who build their own churches at the expense of other churches by drawing people to follow them. Anytime we possess a zeal or a passion which we use to persuade others to follow us and we do it for selfish reasons, we are guilty of sinful zeal. Convictions, passions, and enthusiasm are powerful forces that any communicator knows will influence people. Certainly pastors and other Christian leaders can persuade people by their passion, their enthusiasm. They can woo people to their church or organization by the power of their zeal. If you look at the history of the church, you will see the reality that power corrupts. Religion tends to breed power-hungry leaders who demand the allegiance of their followers. Power breeds megalomania. Wherever people emphasize authority and pursue people to control them, you will have ungodly zeal. Authoritarian approaches to leadership, where people are not to criticize or disagree with the leader, are unbiblical. That is why I believe that a healthy church will have multiple leaders and the power will not be in the hands of one man. In my book, The Persuasive Preacher, Pastoral Influence in a Marketing World, I examined the methods of persuasion and the ethics of how we persuade people today. I dare say that I can teach anyone the social principles behind persuasion because they're well-established and they are effective. Many preachers are learning the marketing skills of persuasion to grow big churches. Any effective, passionate, and zealous person can use these methods to influence people if he or she develops skill in using them. They work. But let me say this very clearly. The use of those persuasive methods for the wrong reasons, even though they are framed in Christian language, is a prostitution of the Christian message. Any person who uses such methods to control people and gain followers is a harlot in disguise. The sad truth is that any one of us is capable of prostituting the gospel for our own ends, for our own gain. We can delude ourselves into thinking it is right when it is oh so wrong. Zeal must not be founded on selfish motives, but zeal must be founded on sacrificial love in verses 18 to 20. But it is good always, Paul writes, to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. 
there is a proper zeal or passion in the cause of Christ. Someone has said that he who has no fire in himself cannot warm others. We need passion and fire in our lives. Christianity was never meant to become a cold and dead orthodoxy. We are not to be the frozen chosen. Such a Christianity attracts no one. But notice the characteristics of sacrificial love, which are the foundation for a biblical zeal. First, it is loyal love in verse 18. Yes, Paul says, you had a zeal for me when I was with you. You passionately loved me and commended me at that time. You eagerly sought after me and followed my teaching. Continue to exhibit that kind of loyal love now. Don't just seek me while I'm there, and the minute my back is turned, you let someone else court you with dishonorable intentions. In this verse, Paul is like a husband who wants his wife's loyal love. Biblical zeal is built on loyal love. Second, it is painful love in verse 19. Then in verse 19, Paul pictures himself as a mother who went through the pains of labor to give birth to a child, only to go through those pains all over again because the child has turned away from God and away from the mother. And any mother knows what Paul is talking about here. No one wants to go through labor all over again. Yet in a sense, every Christian mother does every time her child turns away from her and away from the Lord. Real motherly love agonizes over his, her children. There is pain in true love. The zeal that rises out of sacrificial love is a zeal founded on the desire to see Christ formed in your children. And when we keep that goal uppermost in our minds and attitudes, we will have godly zeal and not ungodly zeal. Finally, it is a perplexing zeal in verse 20. Real love does not throw out pat answers to people. Real love can be perplexed, confused, and hurt by the actions of those we love. To love someone is to risk being hurt. Paul was hurt by their actions. When we show people what the scriptures teach, and they still persist in ruining their lives with sin... We can be perplexed. We can be confused. We don't have to pretend that we understand the choices that other people make. Real love is perplexed at the choice those we love make with their lives. We must speak the truth about personal zeal, for there is much that is considered Christian zeal in our churches that is harmful to the cause of Christ. People can be very passionate in their persuasion of others, but do so for the wrong reasons, no matter how spiritual they make it sound. They end up manipulating people for their own agendas. And there's a fine line between legitimate persuasion and sinful manipulation. As I have studied the theology and ethics of Christian persuasion, I have put together six little ethical questions which I try to use to guide my own persuasion of others, whether they are non-Christians or Christians, whether it is in the church or in the family. Here are those six questions. One, 
Am I misrepresenting the truth? Am I misrepresenting the truth? Two, am I misrepresenting the decision? Three, am I treating the person as a project? Four, am I violating the person's responsibility to make a decision? Five, am I encouraging a response based on the wrong reasons? Six, am I certain that the desired response is in the best interests of the other person? Am I certain that the desired response is in the best interests of the other person? Church ministry and Christian relationships can be messy. Why? Because churches are not perfect. Sin happens. Christians are broken and flawed people who are saved by God's grace. Bad things happen in ministries, and we need to be able to speak the truth in love to one another and hold people accountable to the standards of God's word. True love requires speaking the truth. Pete Newman was the immensely popular camp director for Canacook Camps, one of the largest Christian camps in the world. The camp claims to have served over 450,000 young people from all over the world. Pete Newman was the rock star of the camp. He was also a super predator, sexually abusing many boys at the camp during his 14 years there. On June 9, 2010, Pete Newman pleaded guilty to seven counts of sexual abuse and he was sentenced to two life terms plus 30 years. A civil case alleges that there were 57 victims. How could this happen for so many years without the ministry doing something about it? Christian journalist David French has explained the process in several articles. It is simple. The leadership maintained a culture that discouraged truth-telling, honesty, and transparency. One of the tools that ministries use to discourage transparency is legal NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, sometimes called non-disparagement agreements. Victims and staff are required to sign these agreements as part of the settlements. This way, no one can talk about the sins that have taken place. Sometimes the victims are pressured to sign such agreements to protect the ministry. A similar process took place in RZIM, Ravi Zacharias' ministry. We now know that Ravi Zacharias engaged in the sexual abuse of women over many, many years, but the organization strongly defended him. It was only after his death that the information became widely known. One accuser was told that she was plotting to bring the ministry down. Another accuser was told that she was one step away from complete and total insanity. Ravi Zacharias openly fought against a culture of truth and transparency by accusing his critics of being nasty people and engaging in satanic-type slander of God's work. He even sued one woman and defamed her morally. The lawsuit was eventually settled out of court for $250,000. Once again, 
non-disclosure agreements maintained the secrecy of silence. Everyone was told to trust Ravi and not to attack the ministry because it was God's work and they must protect God's work. Non-disclosure agreements discourage truth-telling and should not be used in Christian ministries. Love for the Lord and for his people is always, is always about truth, even if telling the truth is hard. Yes, church ministry can be messy, but we must always stand for truth in our relationships as Christians. My friends, true love requires speaking the truth.